Hi, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. This is Evan Klein. My job is to interview the best investors in Winston-Salem, North Carolina and the surrounding triad and to dissect what makes them successful, how they think about the market and what strategies they're using today. This is the first podcast episode I'm recording. I usually have, you know, a little bit of banter before I actually start the podcast with a guest. I decided to leave our banter on this one instead of just cutting that out because I talk a little bit about why I'm doing the podcast and Cameron, my guest, talks about why podcasts are helpful, have been helpful for him in the past. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Cameron. Hi, this is Future Evan again. One last thing, I've been dialing in my audio quality with my recording equipment. So this podcast, definitely understandable. There's little peaks and, you know, it's not as good as I would like it to be. The first two or three episodes are like this, and I'll give this disclaimer before all of them. My future episodes, the quality will be much better. So the information's still there. Just hang with me for a little bit and we'll get some better audio quality out there for you. All right. So you're in Chicago right now? No, uh, Miami, actually. Okay. The uh, the buildings behind you look like uh, uh, one of the buildings in Chicago. They call it the corn cob because it has like the round. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. It's, yes. uh, it's crazy. There's skyscrapers going up here left and right. Mm. The amount of development's been insane. Yeah. Um, well, I'll um, count us down to officially start it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Kind of, um, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really have any anything special about the podcast. No, like lightning round questions or anything like that. Just uh, I'm more inspired by folks like Joe Rogan and Tim Ferriss. So just wanted to be like a fun conversation and as long as we're having a good time i think it'll be a good podcast show perfect yeah absolutely i actually um i'm glad you asked me to come on here podcasts were like a really good resource for when i was starting out um and i just digest info a lot better through them as opposed to like you know reading a textbook or whatever it is yeah well and um uh my my overall goal with this podcast in particular is, you know, I don't want to like take up the same space as bigger pockets or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hyper specific on folks investing in Winston and kind of stories around that. Yeah. Um, so there's the informational piece around that, but my overall goal really is to by highlighting folks investing in Winston and like how they're doing it. I guess attract more capital to the city, yeah. Um, and you know, rising tide raises all ships, uh, kind of philosophy there. Um, but yeah, the my my thesis is the more I highlight people who are doing it, the more people will want to do it, and so yeah. my try to impact the city in in my own small way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm very bullish on Winston, and you know, it's completely new to me. I really only first learned about it a few months ago and I just pretty quickly identified it as a market that I wanted to be in. And so I think, you know, podcasts like this will accomplish just that. Yeah. 
Um, cool. Well, I'll, I'll count us count us down just so I have a like an audio starting point, and mm -hmm. then uh, we'll just start talking. Perfect. <laughs> Keep talking, I guess. Yeah. Three, three two, one. Here we go. Um, so, Cameron, uh, thanks for joining me. We were just chatting a little bit, but I wanted to. We were already starting to get into your thought process around investing in Winston and you being bullish on that. So I wanted to start us right away. But um, I guess uh, just initially, do you want to um, give us a little intro of yourself and um, kind of maybe the 30,000 foot view on who Cameron is? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Cameron Heward. I'm 24 years old and uh, first got into real estate uh, I guess 10 years ago when I was 14 at a real estate law firm, um, I knew I didn't want to be an attorney from that experience, but I got very interested in the real estate side of things. And so from there, I'd completed, you know, a bunch of internships or part-time works, working part-time jobs, working for a lot of the bigger real estate companies like Colliers or CBRE. Um, and I got to work in a lot of different markets and a lot of different product types. Um, and then when it came time to graduate, initially I started in, uh, leasing, which was leasing specifically office spaces, which was not a good thing to be in, um, during 2020. And so I quickly had to pivot, um, and moved into capital markets brokerage, which is essentially raising capital, uh, both debt and equity for real estate investors and developers. Uh, and then I make, you know, a percentage of the amount of capital I raise. And so, um, you know, I've only been doing it for about two years now, but uh, I've grown quite a bit since then. And uh, year to date, or not year to date, but in total, I've brokered about $300 million um, in commercial real estate transactions. And so now that the capital markets are a little bit more turbulent, I've decided to spend a lot more time of my time, you know, being an active investor. And that's uh, where I'm getting my start here in Winston-Salem. Uh, I have... Uh a lot of questions just based on that intro. So you uh, said you started working for a law firm when you were 14. Yeah. Yeah. There. So it was a pretty crazy opportunity. Yeah. Can you, how did that come about? Uh, I'm assuming you weren't, didn't just like stumble into it walking <laughs> down the block or something. No, no, actually my high school had a really great program called work experience where they try to place um, high schoolers into part-time jobs. And um, I had a really good relationship with a teacher and she had a friend that was an attorney. And so I started out doing pretty much like office manager stuff, you know, just filing and whatnot. And eventually, you know, as the years went on, uh, my roles increased. Um, and, you know, it was super interesting because I thought going into the job that I wanted to, you know, study pre-law undergrad and go on to law school. But it was a great experience in that I figured out that's not what I wanted to do, but, you know, fell in love with, you know, the contract side, the deal side, uh, the litigation side, which I, I thought was super interesting. Um, and I kind of saw all the money that could be made in real estate, uh, especially I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area as well, where the real estate prices are, you know, as high as anywhere else in the country. Um, and so, you know, that always sparked my interest. And then from there, I just kind of followed that path. Um, I was going to say this earlier, but, uh, you, uh, you look like a, 
uh, Bay Area tech founder, just like you kind of ex- exude that presence. <laughs> so it, uh, I just, it's hilarious. You're actually from San Francisco Bay. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, my, my, neither of my parents were, were into real estate or anything like that. And it's kind of hard to get your foot in the door, especially in a market like that, where the prices are just so high and the investors are very, you know, institutional, very sophisticated. Um, and so, you know, pretty quickly, I, I learned that I would have to figure out how to do business in other areas and, and work remotely. Um, and I think that's where I found success at my company now, Welcome Lend, is that, you know, we're, we're able to do deals all across the country. Um, and operate in markets where it's much easier to build things uh, and a lot less capital intensive as well. So um, what, when you say uh, less, you know, you're talking about less capital intensive markets, is that, so I know a little bit of your story already because we met in an investment meetup a couple weeks ago, um, but uh, so you do some investment in the Midwest. Is that was that partly dictated by where the capital you see the capital market investing going? Mm-hmm. So yes, in part, right. So I think you know the Midwest and then the Southeast are, are much better cash flow markets. Um, and you know, as a landlord as well, you have to consider the political climate uh, and what it's like being a landlord, right? So you know, I think Los Angeles, you know well over two years later, just lifted their eviction moratorium, right? And you run into instances there and like in New York where people were actually not even living in the spaces, they were Airbnb-ing them (laughs) and not landlords rent. And so I think you have to consider those political factors. Um, The capital has something to do with it too, right? Um, You know, in some markets you can't get a home for for less than a million bucks. And, you know, me coming out of college, I didn't have that kind of money uh, to start out. And so, yeah, that, that's absolutely part of it. Um, and I think I'd encourage anyone, you know, out of state to to realize that, you know, you don't have to just invest locally. And even if you're not the principal owner on a project, you know, there, there's other online investing platforms where you can, you know, participate in syndications or, you know, equity raises, things like that um, in other markets that you find more favorable. Yeah. Um, to To back up a little bit, this might bounce up all over the place. I can, um, you, so I'm really curious about your, this, uh, 14 year old part-time job. So <laughs> what, what, I mean, that seems like I've never heard, uh, a school do that with younger kids. Like mm-hmm. to find, I think that's genius. And it, I can see like how that would set people up for a lot of success later in life. Mm-hmm. Is that a private school? Is it a public school? Um, so, what, what, situation there it, it, it was a public school but I, I say it's like a private school so I, I grew up in Palo Alto which is kind of the heart of the Silicon Valley and it's an ultra competitive environment to grow up in because you have just a lot of money from tech uh, a lot of you know Stanford graduates just a lot of very intelligent people and, and actually you know there are people from other countries who will buy a home in Palo Alto so they can send their kids to the pro- to the public schools there um, so they, they are some of the top public schools in the country. You know, I think our average ACT was like 33 out of 36, which is pretty unheard of, especially for a public yeah. school. Um, and I think, you know, that it made me very competitive because even though, you know, my parents, one of my, my dad worked in tech, my mom uh, worked in education. 
And, you know, by no means were we ever struggling or anything like that, but, you know, it takes a lot of money just to get by uh, in a place like that. And so I think in that respect, I grew up, you know, a lot, around a lot of very rich, very ambitious people. I always just knew that I'd, I'd have to work very hard um, to achieve, you know, the kind of lifestyles that, that they had. Um, yeah, that's, in, it's interesting. One thing I've, uh, so there's one story that has always been really fascinating to me, or and it, it's kind of a principle too, but this idea that um, in some ways your success is limited to what you believe is actually possible. So mm-hmm. it seems like the earlier you're exposed to what's possible, the farther you can go. And there's a story, I'm blanking on the actual guy now, but early on in the Olympics, it was thought it was impossible for humans to run faster than a four minute mile. Yeah. And uh, you probably know the story, but you might even know the guy's name, but um, years you know went by, it was impossible. Then one guy broke the four minute mile one year. And then the next year, three people ran faster than it. And then now it's kind of just standard that that's what you have to do to be in the Olympics. But just learning that it was possible to do it paved the way for more people to do it. Um, yeah. A little meandering, but um, so when you were younger, you, it sounds like you were attracted to a higher level of living, kind of that higher lifestyle. Is that, is that kind of still where you at? you're at? Um, Cause you don't live in the Bay area anymore. Mm-hmm. Um this may be a bad way to ask the question, but um, is that still where your mindset is now? Like you're trying to achieve a certain, or let me back all the way up. Where, where do you, where are you headed? Maybe that's like a smarter way to ask the question. Um, yeah, absolutely. What's, what's your, what's your goal? Um, like, do you have a five-year goal, 10-year goal? Like, is there any point you feel like you'll be, you'll be done and you can just sit back on the beaches in Miami? <laughs> No, I'm, I'm very type A and I think, you know, I'm, I'm well ahead of a lot of people kind of in my age group, but I'm, I'm never content. I'm always hungry. I'm just a hard worker by nature. And so I'm always looking for the, the next thing. Um, but as of right now, right, most of my income comes from my active work. So brokering deals, meeting with clients, raising capital. Um, and it was so hot, you know, in 2021, I, I killed it. Um, brokered a ton of deals, you know, to, took home a lot in commission, but it was active. And now that the capital markets have shifted, I've realized, and rates, you know, have nearly doubled in 52 weeks. Um, I've realized that I do need some more passive income sources. And so, you know, that's give, now I have the opportunity because the capital markets have slowed down a bit um, to focus on that. And so, that's my most immediate goal. Uh, I'd like to buy in the Winston market, I'd like to buy 20 or so homes in the next year. Um, and that way at that number, you know, I'll, I'll generate a certain amount of cash flow where, you know, even if the capital markets are shot or, you know, I want to go to Europe and, you know, not work for a couple months, then I don't need to stress about money not coming in. Um, especially with section eight, because, you know, part of it's paid by the government. And so it is guaranteed in some sense. Uh, Whereas like traditional or market multifamily isn't necessarily right. Cause during COVID you had that eviction moratorium. You had a lot of people losing jobs and not paying rent. 
Um, and so that's initially kind of what drew me to Section 8, um, as well as, you know, the tax benefits that I can I can use to offset my brokerage income. Um, yeah, so uh, that brings up, um, so you invest in Section 8. Um, so maybe fast forward a bit. Um, went to college, out of college, got the, the job where you're uh, brokering deals. Um, at what um, point, so I mean, it seems like you made two separate decisions. One, where do I want to invest? And then like an investment thesis around that. I want to do section eight. Um, can you maybe talk about how you arrived at those two decisions initially? Yeah, so I guess I'll start kind of with section eight. Um, so part of it was the low, uh, the low barrier to entry in terms of capital costs. So like most of the homes I look for a hundred K or less, um, which you just can't find in some of the markets that I'm in. Um, but you know, in Winston-Salem, I'm trying to lease my first property right now. And I'm thinking, you know, I can earn somewhere in the ballpark of 1200 to 1500 in rent, depending on what the housing authority will, is willing to pay for a voucher. Um, and so those returns are, are really, really good. And so initially I first learned about Section 8 through talking with some investors. I actually um, saw a deal where they converted um, an old motel that they bought during COVID. It's something like a 13% cap rate because hotels were you know, at the, at the bottom of the barrel in terms of real estate and they converted it to section eight, um, housing and they essentially like tripled their equity in the deal. They didn't put much into it as well. It was a pretty simple conversion. Um, and so I just saw those kinds of returns. They were so much greater than, you know, the other development deals I was doing on the industrial commercial or multifamily side. Um, and then plus it was guaranteed. So that's initially how I got into section eight. And then um, as for the market, uh, I was really just looking at a map of the United States on Zillow um, and seeing where you could get homes for under you know, $100,000, $120,000. And so I was looking at all these different markets. You know, I've, I've lived in California, Hawaii, and now here in Florida, and there really isn't many markets in those states where you could do that. Um, and I saw other markets too where they were cheaper, but they didn't offer the same quality of life, the same, uh, you know, level of economic strength and opportunity um, and that Winston-Salem did. And so I was actually initially surprised that you could pick up homes for that cheap. Um, and so that's kind of how I, I initially settled on it. And then I did a lot more research and just found the fundamentals of the market to be superior to a lot of the other ones that I was considering. So what market did you choose initially to invest in? So initially, I, I have properties in a few different areas, but the first one was actually some Airbnbs here. Um, and that's, you know, super operationally intensive, um, kind of dependent on the economy and disposable, disposable income as well. And so I decided I, I didn't want to do that and uh, started looking elsewhere. Okay. And then... Uh, so what point was looking at the Airbnbs? So you had mentioned that you had saw, you had seen this other deal where the motel conversion, did you uh, do the Airbnbs before or after you so saw that? That, that was before that. Okay. Yeah. 
so um you saw the the potential of the Airbnbs. It seemed like the section eight would be better. Uh and so you pivoted your strategy. It sounds like that's kind of how it happened. Yeah, that's correct. And I think that's it. Another thing about real estate is you have to kiss a lot of frogs. Your first deal, you might not get right, or it might not be the best fit for you. Um, uh-huh. so it's best to, you know, see a lot of different deals, look at a lot of different markets and, you know, see what sticks. Um, and I kind of had that benefit right through my full-time job because we're, we're closing deals all over the country, you know, and it could be hotel, industrial, pre-leased retail, multifamily, whatever it is. And so, I got a lot of exposure to a lot of different deals, a lot of different markets. Um, and ultimately, you know, Section 8 in Winston-Salem was just felt like the best decision. And I it, I still have to execute, right? Um, I'm just getting started. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, but on paper, everything seems like it'll be great. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, hopefully being a success and expanding the operation. Yeah. Um, there's a... There is a guy, have you connected, um, I forget his name, uh, I'm blanking on his name off the top of my head, but he's in the Slack group, and he had commented on that one, that first deal you were asking questions about, and he was like a little snarky about it. But uh, <laughs> Well, I, I appreciate it. I mean, I, I am the market newbie, right? I, I'm just getting into yeah. it. Uh, but, uh, had, did you, have you had a chance to connect with him yet? No, I know I haven't yet. Um, cause he has about 20, that's, he does section eight in Winston. Okay. I think he has 20 or 30 properties, give or take. Nice. Um, and he, I know he got, he used to come to the meetup. Um, he hasn't been in a while, but he, he actually got started cause he had a mentor who did it before him like 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, he would, he would, would definitely be a good resource, I think, to reach out to. Um, yeah. Uh, even if his communication style is a little <laughs> blunt. <laughs> oh, no worries, man. I, I work with developers all day and, uh, <laughs> you know, they're hard-nosed guys for the most part, but uh, I, I enjoy working with them. Yeah. So with the capital markets piece, what, um, I don't, I have like, zero context or experience for what that's like but what's um two i guess two questions one can you maybe explain a little bit more what you mean by that and then talk about what learnings you've taken from the the experiences there so far into investing or like what what pieces you feel like are apply yeah yeah, absolutely. Um, so capital markets brokerage is is a fancy way of saying you raise money for developers and investors and then take a cut of how much money that you raise. And so big firms will generally have like capital markets brokerage arms. So like JLL, CBRE, those kinds of groups. Um, and there's a lot of smaller kind of middle market shops as well that, that provide that same service. But uh, in a nutshell, the way uh, the company Welcome Lend that I that I'm at operates is you know we'll reach out to developers and investors and saying you know hey I see you have this project you know have you found capital for it yet like if it's a development project have you found capital or if it's like a perm deal you know do you have the cheapest debt available on the market 
and so it's a pretty easy intro, right? Because you're, you're offering someone money, so that you'll at least get a response most of the time. Um, and then it's your job to take that deal, find the best you know lender for it. And it could be a bank, it could be private money, it could be the family office. Um, you have to have connections on the lender side um, and you have to pair them with the deal and you got to make sure it's you know the best deal out there for the client. Um, and our company leverages technology to do that job um, much better than I think a lot of the traditional firms have been doing. And so, you know, on the business development side, we scrape permitting databases and find out, you know, everything that's in the entitlement process and ready to be built and reach out to those developers. And then uh, in terms of finding the best fund for a deal, um, what we'll do is, you know, we, we have a huge lender database. We have all their programs. So like construction, bridge, perm, and then, you know, we can see title reports in a specific market to kind of pair the right lender for a specific deal. Um, and it's given me, you know, a lot of exposure to, to a bunch of different markets and a bunch of different deal types. Like my first deal actually was an industrial project out in Boise, Idaho. And I, I've never been to Boise. I didn't know really anything about it at the time. Um, and, you know, we paired it with a small kind of private equity fund out of Utah. And it's really just kind of a one man shop with an analyst. Uh, small fund. We paired those two together just through the technology and ended up getting it closed. And I think a lot of the firms, you know, the way they currently operate is they'll just have like a list of funds and they'll just, you know, dial, hey, what are your terms? You know, what could you do on this deal? And, and it may not be the best fit. But uh, in that sense, we've been able to use technology to kind of short circuit that whole process. And me being, you know, 23, 24 years old, I was able to get into it, you know, 10 times faster than uh, I guess the normal process of, of working at one of those bigger firms. Yeah, um, that's awesome. So with the brokerage fee, who who actually pays that? So it goes into the total project cost, but basically if I'm you know closing a $10 million loan on behalf of a client, um, typically for debt, you'll charge between one to one and a half percent. So let's say 1%, that's a hundred grand fee. What they'll do is they'll add that hundred grand into the loan amount, um, and then it's paid out to me at closing. So the lender capitalizes it right, but it does go into the developer's total project cost. And okay. so when they go to refinance, um, you know they're going to have to refinance the total cost plus the, my hundred grand fee. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you primarily raise capital for new construction or new development projects? Yeah. Not any. So, okay. Oh, sorry. What was that? I think the audio cut out there. Oh, um, uh, so if somebody was uh, going to rehab, like a do a large um, like rehabilitation, like for instance, uh, the Reynolds building downtown here, it got gutted and turned into a hotel. So that wouldn't necessarily be in your wheelhouse. No, so yeah, we can do bridge financing or like conversions like that um, because of our business development side and, and scraping like the permitting data, our bread and butter is certainly being construction. Um, but we have the connections to do, you know, bridge loans, rehab loans, um, permanent loans, as well as equity. Um, so in, in that sense, it's, it's full service and we can kind of take on any project. But it, as brokers, we, you know, we want to do the deals that are transacting, right? So in 
2020, no, you know, nobody was going to finance a hotel. It just wasn't going to happen. And so, you know, rather than wasting my time hitting up develop, you know, hotel developers, yeah, I transitioned more to like industrial or multifamily. Um, and so in that sense, it's very good because you are able to pivot and pivot pretty quickly. Um, whereas maybe if, you know, you're a, a local sales broker, uh, you're not pigeonholed in that, you know, you have a boss that's telling you what to do, but you are pigeonholed in that you're stuck in that market. Um, and you can't really move out of it. And so you'll really just have to dig deep um, to find the deals that are happening. But uh, when you take a more macro look at the market and seeing which markets are hot, which product types are hot, you can find deals uh, and close deals much more easily. So with the lending, what does a typical um, one, or I guess first, is is there a minimum deal size you normally work with or like what's the range usually and what does the the structure of that lending tend to look like i'm just curious sure so I, i'd say that our average deal size is probably about 25 million bucks um generally tr try to work deals that are a hundred thousand or excuse me 10 million or more um and sorry what was that what was the second part of that question um what is the structure the lending structure typically look like on a deal like that um because in the you know in the residential world that I live in, uh, you know it's the most common structure is like twenty percent uh, down on a project, eighty percent will get lended out. Is that is that kind of basic structure comparable with a, a larger new construction project like that, or is it all, it is it its own toll like you know different ball game? Yeah, so that I mean that's a, a great question. And it really is deal specific. Um, you know, back in 2021, we were getting some deals done at you know 90% loan costs, like new development deals where the sponsors were only bringing in the land and then we would finance the rest, you know, 100 percent of the remaining costs. Um, you know, since the market's changed, leverage has kind of decreased and um, it really, it's just deal specific and there, there's a lot of different capital sources too, right? Like some, some clients will need you to raise equity for them or they'll need you to find uh, a partner to guarantee the loan because they have a, a stronger balance sheet. Um, some clients will only borrow from bank banks because they really care about keeping the cost of capital as low as possible. Um, but some opt to use private money because they'll have, you know, a smoother draw process or a smoother closing process and maybe offer you more leverage. Um, and so it's really just finding the most, the best, you know, capital solution for a project. Like I, I'd compare it to, you know, scoring a film or a ballet, right? Like you need the music to align with what you're seeing on the screen. It's the yeah. same thing for construction finance. You need the capital to match the project. Um, like one really, really good example I could give you is, so we, we do a lot of home builder deals where, you know, somebody's building you know, a big subdivision, right? And a lot of banks that are in construction lending, they'll want to like limit the amount of starts. So say you have a, a hundred home subdivision, they're going to say you can only build five at once and those need to absorb, right? But in the crazy low interest rate economy that was 2020 and 2021, right? demand through the roof, a private lender might be more opportunistic and say, you know, you could go out, build 30 homes. These things are all going to sell. You know, we see all the buyers lined up, pre-sale and everything like that. And so 
while the bank might get you a rate that's half price of that private lender, um, you know, maybe your strategy is build fast, sell fast. And so the private capital is the best solution. Hmm. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So with the, do you have, uh, if you had a, a crystal ball, uh, and could see the future, what is your gut sense of where the lending environment's going in the next couple of years? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, I don't know. I mean, selfishly, I, I hope that rates come down, obviously. Um, yeah. And I think that's going to need to happen for, you know, ultimately a lot more deals to happen and, and transact. Um, but it's tough to say, you know, and, and pr- inflation is so high right now. Um, I think that one thing that people fail to consider, though, in, in factoring inflation is that, you know, about a third of it is shelter, right? And when you increase interest rates, you're actually just increasing the price of capital. While some housing prices are going down, they're not going down by much. And so I think what needs to happen is people need to focus on the other parts of the inflation equation um, because another third, right, is like transportation, energy, fuel, those sorts of things. And and those can be fixed with, you know, non-Fed policies. Um, And so I'm hoping that, you know, in this next election cycle, some measures will be taken to, to tame inflation without absolutely killing the housing market because we still have 3.8 million dollar or 3.8 million unit housing shortage in America um yeah. and there's so much demand but it's you know people can't afford to pay 7% money on a on a 30 year mortgage anymore um and so it, it does need to be fixed i i wish i knew which direction it was going though <laughs> yeah uh don't we all um so uh that that reminds me um in a, a in some of our exchanges and in the group you had made the comment that um you were looking for a market that would benefit a little bit more in appreciation than perhaps what you've done before and that was one of the factors that led you to winston salem um mm-hmm. so maybe we can transition to uh, your your choice to start investing in Winston and maybe some thought process around that. Um, one of the pieces being uh, appreciation. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think Winston is unique in that it, it can be a really good cash flow market, but can also, you know, has the potential to appreciate. And, uh, we saw in 2020 with, you know, a lot of people moving to states like North Carolina, um, you know, some states where it's a little bit more favorable for landlords as well. Um, and so I think it's a great place to live just based on on visiting there. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, it was similar to the college town that I went to at Indiana University um, called Bloomington, where it had like a great community feel. But at the same time, you have a lot of uh, a lot of economic opportunity and a strong employment base. And so when I combined all those things, it, it was just the the most logical um, market to get started in. Um, but I think there, there was some other stuff too that I saw that was really enticing. So, you know, you have that Toyota battery plant, right? That's being built. I think it's over a billion dollars and it's gonna bring, you know, thousands of jobs. Um, I saw the, the $500 million supersonic, um, uh, boom supersonic, factory that's being built there. 
you have 20 universities in the area, um, a few of which are, you know, very, very strong, very prestigious and, um, you know, bring in a lot of entrepreneurship and, and business growth and that sort of thing. Um, and then in addition to that is that, you know, the triad kind of metroplex is I think the 30th or somewhere around their largest MSA in the country. And so it's, it's very established. There's a lot of different industries, right? You have tobacco, agriculture, aerospace engineering, medical, um, I'm sure I'm missing some, manufacturing distribution, right? It, it has it all. And so those diverse employment bases too are something that's, that's very attractive about the market. So with, um, with specializing in Section 8, are there any industries in particular that lend itself to creating a better Section 8 environment? Mm -hmm. uh, if, if you know, I mean, if that's something you look at, maybe you don't. So there are things that can indirectly affect it, right? So I think if, um, you know, one part of the equation is just uh, housing affordability. And so if you have all these jobs coming in, right, then the people kind of towards the bottom of, you know, the the earning, I guess, the earning spectrum, you know, they're going to be kind of priced out of the market. And I think we, we saw that in Winston, right? Like rents are up a ridiculous amount. I actually saw that in Greensboro, I think rents were up like double digits quarter over quarter most recently. And so, you know, that all plays into Section 8 demand um, with with more people moving in. There's just a lot. Housing becomes less affordable. Right. And so the demand for Section 8 uh, ultimately increases. I think that the Section 8 program just nationally, though, is so overwhelmed. Like there's just so much more demand for affordable housing than there is supply. Um, and so that's that's not as much of an issue. It's really you just have to find the right um municipality to work with and housing authority and the one in winston-salem has been a pleasure to work with I, I went there and met with them on my last trip but the the people at the housing authority were very motivated to you know help people on the program work with landlords to create housing solutions um and then just we're just very transparent on their process and you know how i could be a good landlord and how you know i can best serve the tenants on their program um, so th there were a lot of things that went into it but um, yeah, that's ultimately why I settled on Winston. Um, with uh, the Section Eight, is the does the bottleneck seem to be funding behind the program? Is it inventory? Um, is it stigmatization? All of the above? Like what? What's the? What seems to be the bottleneck? Yeah. So. I think it goes back to the huge housing deficit in the US, right? 3.8 million housing units um, is the current deficit. And, you know, with the rates, with the where rates are at right now, there's not going to be a whole lot of new construction. And so I think that, you know, that's, that's the, what's causing so much demand. Um, it's my understanding that the program's well-funded, you know, I don't think they've ever missed payments to landlords. Um, from the vouchers. Um, yeah, so I, I really think it just comes down to that national housing shortage. The other thing as well to consider is uh, buying below replacement costs. So in development replacement costs is, you know, what would it cost to demolish a house and rebuild that same exact thing, right? And with 
the crazy labor costs, the crazy, you know, construction costs, everything like that. In, in Winston specifically, you can't rebuild a home for under $100,000. It's just not going to happen. Even the biggest home builders in the U.S., if they were to go to, to, go to that market, they wouldn't be able to build for less than $100,000. And so that, that kind of also plays into my strategy of buying homes below replacement costs, right? Because their value is more insulated because um, it can't just be demoed and rebuilt for, for cheaper. Um, right. And you could still find, you know, quality housing. Like I, the one I just picked up was, I think I closed for ninety-five or $97,000. And it was, you know, actually purchased off a of flipper. It was in really, really good condition. The only thing I needed to do was put in a, a new water heater. Um, uh, and what, what part of town was that in? So it was just south of the, uh, the airport locally. So it was okay. on northeast 14th street okay um and we probably should have done this uh beforehand but um can you uh explain section eight if there's anyone who perhaps doesn't know what section eight is Mm -hmm. yeah so i think the probably the most common misconception about section eight is um you know, that there's such thing as a, a Section 8 property or a Section 8 house. And so that's that's not the case. Uh, Section 8 is basically a federal program administered on the municipal level. And, um, you know, those at or, you know, below the average income in an area will qualify for Section 8 and they'll get a voucher um, from the local housing authority. And that voucher has a certain amount of beds on it. You know, if it's like a three person family, they'll get a three bed voucher and they can find a landlord offering housing give them that voucher and then the section 8 housing authority will pay a certain number or a certain amount in rent to that landlord essentially guaranteed um, for that voucher and so it can be both single family homes or it could be a multi-family property um, but that's essentially how the section 8 program works and the reason why i, I prefer it to non-section 8 housing is just that you know, that rent is coming in from the government guaranteed because they're paying most of the rent, whereas the tenant only pays a very small portion. Um, and like through COVID in 2020, during the eviction moratorium, you know, the government kept paying, whereas uh, a lot of market rate landlords weren't as fortunate. Right. So with that voucher, are tenants able to supplement on top of, in addition to the voucher, if they want, you know, if it's a higher rent uh, property, so like say if a voucher's a th- you know for a thousand dollars, can they rent a fifteen hundred dollar home and just pay five hundred a month themselves? Yeah, exactly. So th- there is a tenant portion to the rent; they are responsible for a certain portion of the rent, but it's you know generally less than like fifteen percent of, of the total monthly yeah. rent, and so it's it's a very small small portion of it. You can't like say, oh, here's this voucher, but I'm gonna you have to tell the section housing authority basically how much you're going to charge in rent. And then you can't charge more than that without letting them know ahead of time. Yeah. And I think they used to pay it out based off of like, they would just approve these for a certain dollar amount. Like you get 1500 in rent. But since there was like such a huge housing shortage, you had people overpaying for smaller spaces, like a four bed family would have, you know, a huge voucher, but maybe there was only two beds available in the market. And so they'd be paying, Kind of a disproportionate amount of rent um and the government you know wasn't any wiser to it so they've switched it now where it's uh based on the number of beds or members of the family 
And uh, um, how does that work year to year? So, for instance, like with inflation going up, um, are landlords able to incrementally raise rent? Or is that just totally dictated by the uh, Section 8 um, local authority? Yeah, so great question. And and so typically, it, it's really easy. It's an annual process. You just say, hey, I'd like to increase the rent. I think if you increase it more than a certain percentage, like and it's in the double digits, then you have to get approval from the housing authority. But if not, if it's a smaller rent, you know, they, they want to keep your house on the Section 8 program, the housing authority. They want to keep their tenants in homes. And so they'll just accept the increase. And then it's generally not even paid for by the tenant. The housing authority just covers that increase in rent. Okay. Um, and so, you know, it, it is somewhat of a bureaucratic process, but it's not difficult. And I think that that scares investors, but it probably shouldn't. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I didn't, I'd never had even thought about that until just now. Um, so we, uh, I, I remember you had asked at the meetup what parts of town had higher potential for growing. Mm-hmm. Are there, um, I guess, how much, how much research have you done on Winston? What neighborhoods are you looking at? And, uh, like, do you have any questions about the city yet unanswered or, um, like kind of needs you have, I guess, moving forward to really do what you want to do? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I, yeah, so I, I don't know the area that well. I've only been that one time when I, I met with you and, and visited, um, so if there are, you know, suggestions as to, to areas that might, you know, appreciate more than others or areas with lower crime, but you could still get, you know, a reasonably affordable house. I think that's really of interest to me, as well as if, you know, uh, any brokers are out there that know of off market deals um, that they'd be able to send, uh, you know, well capitalized and can close quickly. Um, and as long as, you know, it's it's respectable housing and a tenant, you know, could be moved in relatively quickly without too much needed in repairs that, you know, that's exactly what we're looking for. Um, and I, another thing I, I think I should mention too, is just the amount of demand in Winston for section eight housing. So as of a couple months ago, I, I met with the housing authority and they told me that there's 980 vouchers on the street. So that, that means there's 980 housing vouchers that are issued, but those people cannot find housing because there's just not enough landlords willing to, to take on a Section 8 tenant or there's just not enough housing in general. And the do- the gross dollar amount of the approved vouchers is around a quarter million dollars per month. And so these people have the vouchers in hand, they're ready to give it to a landlord, they just can't find the landlords willing to accept it. Um, and so th- there's tons of demand, I just, I wanna go find the housing I haven't seen much inventory on like realtor.com and Zillow and stuff. And so yeah. I think uh, basically if, if anyone knows of housing kind of under 120 grand or so, I'm happy to take a look and, you know, see if it, see if it checks the box and, and I can purchase it. Yeah. Uh, so um, maybe to dig in that a little bit, when you're looking at a deal, um, what? What are, because I know you, you pursued one and ended up not being a good fit. Yeah. Um, and you, you kind of took the L on the due diligence. <laughs> um, but uh, what, um, what didn't make that property a good fit? And like, what are red flags? And like, 
maybe like green flags uh, mm -hmm. as, as you were looking around of things that may be a good deal. Like, do you, because you just said you bought one that was a flip that was more turnkey. Do you look for more value add properties or do you try to look for more turnkey solutions? Yeah. So I, I generally want to avoid value add um, just because I, you know, I'm not boots on the ground. I can't really oversee it. Um, and, and it's more about just getting a tenant place quickly is kind of my strategy. Um, and yeah, back to that one where I, I took the L on the deposit, it was interesting. So that was actually already a house that was on the Section 8 program and it had a Section 8 tenant in there. And so the housing authority does um, biannual inspections in this market to see if it meets, you know, HUD qualifications where they can move in a tenant because they don't, you know, they, they don't want it to be like horrible you know, inhumane living conditions, right? Which is a good thing. Um, and so they already had a Section 8 tenant in there. And so in, in my head, I was I was thinking, oh, there's already someone in there. It must have passed inspection. It's got to be in pretty decent shape. Um, but I hired an inspector and actually went on the property, went to visit the property when I was there. And it was just, it was just in terrible condition. Like, you know, the foundation was cracking. There was uh, leaks in the basement. Um, the roof needed total replacement cracked windows, you know, uneven flooring, had an oil heat, which is, you know, very expensive. And I'm not even sure that it was working. And so, you know, I could have bought it and I, I could have made a good return and just kept that tenant in there and even increased the rent. Right. But that's, that's not what I didn't want to do at my company. You know, I, I wanted the housing to be respectable. I want it to be good quality. I want it to be a house that, you know, I wouldn't, you know, have an issue living in myself. Right. And I think that's unfortunately, not the attitude that a lot of Section 8 investors have, which is unfortunate because, you know, there's more than enough margin on deals where you can buy, you know, dignified, high quality housing, put in a strong tenant, make, you know, a great return um, without having to, you know, sacrifice, I guess, your morals and, and, you know, putting, placing a tenant in like terrible housing because these people, they're not in a position, right, to negotiate much. Like there's so much demand for housing. They're just happy to have a place to call home. And I think some people, some landlords definitely abuse that, um, but you just don't need to and you just shouldn't. So, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, there's a few uh, uh, legacy investors, I guess you could call them in Winston, who mm. are, I'm sure it's like that in many cities, but um, yeah. Uh, I have a I have a long term goal to buy out their portfolios and actually <laughs> turn it into because uh, even Section Eight, it's uh, just um, properties across the board and even nicer. Um, I mean, you could just Google any of the property management companies in Winston, and you'll see exactly the ones I'm talking about that have like one and a half star Google reviews because. Yeah. They're just, you know, terrible um, yeah. to treat tenants and uh, handle their assets. But um, yeah. when, I, when I backed out of that transaction and I, I just took the L on the deposit, you know, um, but when I talked to the, the PM, he was saying, oh, this property is better condition than, you know, 90% of the Section 8 homes we sell. And I was I couldn't believe it. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, for those reasons, sometimes Section 8 gets a bad rap, but it really just comes down to the landlord. Um, and the housing authority doing their job. Um, yeah, it's just, it's tough because these people need housing. And so, you know, they'll, they'll take the bad hand they're dealt, I guess, if, if it comes to, if it means they're, you know, they're not off the streets or having to live with friends. 
um, you know, they'll take the lower quality housing, but it definitely does not need to be that way, um, especially from what I've seen, you know, in the Winston market. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, we were chatting a little bit about this before uh, we officially started um, the podcast, but um, one of my other goals for doing this podcast is to attract better landlords to Winston and better investors to Winston to actually take care of the properties more because like you're saying it it, it doesn't make sense not to uh, yeah. both for like the human dignity piece but also even the return piece um, yeah I in my mind there's no excuse just to be effectively a slumlord yeah I think the other thing too, right, is like for my long-term goals, you know, if I buy a dilapidated house right now, I'm 24 years old and I don't take care of that thing, it's it's going to have to get demoed in, in a few years. You know, it's not going to be, it's going to be completely unlivable in terrible condition. And so in that respect, I am more incentivized to take care of the housing, provide quality housing to these tenants. But I, in it's it can be a win-win or it could be a win-lose. I think you just, you need to make the decision as a landlord, how you want to do business. Yeah. Um, so you had said your your goal is to buy 20 homes this next year. Yeah. Are you wanting to do that all in Winston or because uh, you're in you're also in Indiana? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So also there. So my goal right now is to get 20 homes. Um, I'm open to High Point and Greensboro as well. Like I, I like that whole area. Um, it's just that the, each of those cities has different housing authorities to work with. And I just haven't worked with them, but I, I've met with the folks at the Winston-Salem Housing Authority. Um, pleasure to work with, super helpful. They actually appointed like a landlord liaison um, to be a landlord's point of contact. And so that's why I've started in Winston. Um, but that's not to say I, I wouldn't go outside of that market, but just in terms of scaling, it makes sense to do it all, do it all locally. Yep. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so your... 24, which is uh, young, especially for the success you've achieved, um, at least in my experience. What, um, I guess one question I have around that is like, what voices are you listening to? Um, like, is there any, you had mentioned that you, you take an information well through podcast format. Like, are you... Yeah, I guess I just want to know, like, who are you listening to? Who do you think is really smart? Um, uh, how, yeah, so maybe answer that first and I have a follow-up question also. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, when I was first starting out in real estate, again, I, I didn't have family and anything, so I had to learn it myself. So I, I started on bigger podcasts, uh, bigger pockets, excuse me, um, learned a ton. But then from there, I think it's just being active in the industry. You know, I've always had a job since I was 14 years old. Um, like all throughout college, all throughout high school, I always worked. And so I learned a lot that way. Um, another thing too, like that's why I love podcasts. So when I was starting out in the capital markets, a lot of it was construction financing, right? And I, I my parents weren't home builders or anything like that. I, I had no construction experience and construction is different from real estate. It's a whole nother animal. Um, but I found this one podcast called dirt on Spotify. Um, I think his name's like Aaron DeWitt maybe. But I listened to that and then read like this construction for dummies book and, you know, just learned it like that. And so I think real estate, you just got to be excited about what you're doing. Um, you have to be motivated 
Um, and there's a lot of resources out there. Like I think there's more educational resources in real estate than maybe any other industry online. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you just gotta be interested and be willing to put in the work. Is there any uh, non-real estate um, podcast you're listening to? Um, well, I listen to some just like, just kind of casual podcasts, um, some true crime, but I, my favorite one, it's called heavyweight actually, where basically they, they meet with people and reconnect them with people or events from their past. Um, and so that's, it's, yeah, it's called heavyweight on Spotify. Um, really, really good listen. But yeah, most, mostly everything I do is centered around real estate. It's, it's been my passion <laughs> since I was 14. I'm still super interested in it. Um, you know, I, I do a lot of other things for fun, but, um, career stuff, work stuff, it's all around real estate. What, looking at the next, like one to five years, what areas in real estate or otherwise, um, are you hoping to, uh, learn and grow in and get better at? Yeah. So again, I'm far from the seasoned or expert investor. There are guys out there with you know, operations much more sophisticated than mine. And so now that the capital markets business has slowed a bit, um, you know, my goal is to just grow this portfolio, learn some management skills, um, you know, and generate passive income where I I no longer need to rely on the brokerage income. And so that's that's probably my most, I guess, actionable short-term goal. And I think, you know, doing 20 houses this year will, will get me in a good spot. If you, um, if money wasn't an issue, would you still be doing real estate? <laughs> that's a that's a super good question because it's a question I ask myself a lot because a lot of my developer clients, right? Someone will be 70, 80 years old and they'll have substantial balance sheets, substantial passive income, but they love it and they they work really hard and it's all they know and they they do it till they die. I mean, I don't even know how old Trump is, but like, you know, that guy doesn't need to work, right? <laughs> he ain't the president. Um, but he, I think something about him, he's just like a workaholic. Um, it's the attitude a lot of developers have. And so I think I would still be doing it, but it'd be nice to completely take the issue of money off the table and just work with guys that you want to work with, work on projects that you're interested in um, and, you know, generate returns in the process. But I do have some ambitions. Like if I had all the money in the world, I, I would go into some other industries as well. Um, but you know, for now, real estate's been been good to me and the best vehicle I could find for for making money. Yeah. What what other in- industries are you interested in? So one one thing, and I've actually just talked to a friend about this, um, is like the buy now, pay later phenomenon. I'm not sure if you, you've heard of that, but it's it's companies like a firm and whatnot where essentially they're extending credit to both business and consumers. Um, and basically, yeah, they're able to purchase goods or services and then pay later. And well, I'm not sure it's the best thing for the economy. I think it's, it's a massive opportunity in the capital markets and in the finance world. I, I read some statistic that between like Gen Z and, and millennials, nine out of $10 of retail debt were in the past couple of years have been on buy now, pay later. Um, and so I think, that's really industry interesting. Um, I love the fitness industry. I try to go to the gym and do yoga a lot. So I'd love to like own my own gym. Um, but yeah, for now, real estate keeps me, keeps me super busy. Are you, um, 
uh, familiar with Alex Ramosi by any chance? No, I don't, I don't believe so. Um, <laughs> I would recommend you you look him up. He uh, he got his start as a, a gym owner, but he's kind of he's been super successful and now just he actually owns a holding company and invests in information or uh, yeah, like e learning brands basically. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, anyway, you he he got to start owning a gym uh, and uh, reminded me of that. But would you uh, would you specifically want to do like a yoga studio or more of a like a LA fitness type situation? Um, yeah, more, more like kind of just a brick and mortar gym. Um, but I, I would want to put, I, I don't want to give away my, my future business plan, but <laughs> I, I create some kind of incentive system where people would be more motivated to go. Um, because a lot of, you know, the gym utilization rate is like super low. Like so many people have men- memberships and just never, ever go. And I think that that needs to change because the U S has a ton of health problems and chronic disease and obesity and everything like that. And so I feel like it's, it's something I would enjoy and also feel, feel good about doing as well. Yeah. Um, are there, uh, any books that you've, uh, gifted more than other books to other people, not necessarily read yourself? Yeah, actually, um, like one, I'm actually not a huge, like self-help motivational speaker guy. I think a lot of it's corny, but there's one guy that, that I actually think, you know, changed my life to some degree. And it's, I don't know if you know, David Goggins, but the name's his, familiar. His story is absolutely incredible. Um, you know, he had a very unfortunate upbringing. Um, was actually in Indiana, you know, grew up dirt poor, you know, very high crime area, was like the only black kid, um, you know, growing up in his neighborhood. Uh, was really just, I think he describes it as like, grew up uh, in the bottom of the sewer. And from there, you know, he became a Navy SEAL, something like he, he lost, you know, 100 something pounds in a couple of months to qualify. Um, and then he started doing like ultra marathons. Um, and he teaches, he preaches like mental toughness and that, you know, you're not always going to love the hand you're dealt. You're never going to be given the best hand, but it's about, you know, the actions you take that, you know, determine your ultimate position in life. And so, um, actually during like 2020 when all the gyms were shut down i got i got huge i i was just not able to work out the same way um i used to right and so i kind of listened to him just had him in my ear listening to his audiobook and it was the same thing i i think i went down from like 190 pounds to like 170 in like a month and a half and it was just i don't know and you could apply his teachings i guess to business or health or really anything um, but it's just very, very motivational. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I also gained weight over the pandemic and I've, uh, I'm officially yesterday I lost, uh, 20 pounds. I'm on my way back down. So I'm trying yeah. to get back to, yeah, yeah trying to get well, back to the normal. Well, uh, get, try David Goggins. Um, <laughs> he's awesome. He actually was, he was on the Joe Rogan podcast too. Um, that's how okay. I heard about him. Um, yeah, he, he's awesome. Um, is there a, a purchase you made, uh, a hundred dollars or less recently that's disproportionately improved your life for the better? hundred dollars or less. 
it doesn't have to be that exact amount, but kind of the, the principle is like something that didn't cost that much money, but gave you like, uh, you know, leveraged a much greater impact on your life. Yeah, actually. So the one thing I collect is like old vinyl records. Um, and you can normally get, you know, a pretty good album from a used record store for, for under 10 bucks. Um, but what I really like about it is that it's not like Spotify where you just hit the next song that you like, you know, you want to listen the whole thing through. And so for 10 bucks, you could go pick up a, an old record, listen to it. You'll find a bunch of new music that you haven't heard before uh, just because you got to listen to the whole album. And so most recently, I think I bought it was one by um, shoot. What's her name? She sing, uh Amy Winehouse. And I never okay. really, I never really liked her that much, but I'd heard much a lot about her, and I listened to her one of her albums, and you know, found a bunch of good new, you know, good new music. Yeah, I that's one of my favorite things is albums that were designed as an album, not just like a collection of singles. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, some of my favorite, um, some of my favorite albums were are, are like that. I really like. Uh, uh, this is a an odd one, maybe, but Lincoln Park, A Thousand Sons, what they had one album where the whole album plays as one song, where like each song kind of goes into the next one, and it's yeah, uh, it's um thematically uh, all linked together, and it's their most uh, positive outlook uh, philosophically. A lot of their stuff is pretty grungy and like angry but i feel like the album is uh i like that one a lot yeah yeah absolutely and like i i'm a big classic rock guy so all those albums that kind of play through like you know abbey road or dark side of the moon or anything like that it's it's super yeah. interesting you don't you definitely don't get that today or at least not as much yeah, yeah. do you uh, keep up with modern music at all yeah actually I, I was at a music festival this weekend with some friends um i definitely don't appreciate the same way I, I appreciate classic rock but there's something to be said about just like going to, to live music and dj sets and you know i know a lot of old guys would crucify me for like saying it's really good but i i i have a very diverse you know taste in music so i'll listen to to some hip-hop some rap some edm that sort of thing uh yeah, I, I try to listen to it all and keep an open mind. I think the other thing, too, is I tend to find an artist that I really like, and then I'll listen to a lot of their stuff, um, as opposed to, like, a genre like pop or something like that. Like, I, I don't listen. I don't know most of the top rap songs on the charts, but there's a few guys that, I, you know, I like, really like, and I'll, I'll know, you know, most of their music. Yeah. Um, well, I, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, so you maybe wrap up here in a little bit. Um, if, um, if someone wanted to reach you, um, kind of help connect you in the Winston market or talk to you about music or whatever, uh, what would be the best way to reach out to you? Yeah, I pre appreciate you asking. Um, definitely looking to, you know, connect with more people in the market, um, especially being an out of state guy. So my company's called Affordable Family Housing. My email is just Cameron at affordablefamilyhousing.org. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm pretty responsive on there. So we'd love to connect um, or just meet whatever, whatever <laughs> you're interested in. Yeah. And as far as uh, in Winston, do you have any 
I guess, specific needs that would uh, be the most helpful? Like, do you have, is there any, um, like holes in your team of people on the ground here or like any connections that would be helpful, particularly helpful? Yeah. Um, I think my main issue right now is inventory, man. There's just not much on the market. And so, and, you know, maybe someone that, uh, maybe like a broker that, that can find those deals for me. Um, yeah, I, you know, and I have a very specific criteria, so I could just hand it over. But I think that that's the main thing. Um, I found a solid uh, property manager out there, um, have a good kind of title attorney and everything. So that that's probably the main one. Who are you using as a property manager? So actually, I'm just doing it in-house. I, uh, funny okay. enough, that day that I, I met with you, I just posted like a Craigslist ad. And the amount of people that hit me up that same day was insane like a lot there's a lot of people really hungry to learn about real estate i just put up an ad that said you know part-time uh assistant to real to a real estate investor um found a guy about my age you know he, he drove by in a truck that day and yeah. uh, had a lot of handy experience wanted to learn more about real estate investing and so we, we figured something out together um but yeah i think uh part of that's because of podcasts like this you know i think a lot of young people are just becoming very interested Um, cool. Are there any other um, parting words you'd like to leave um, before we wrap wrap this up? Uh, no, I think one thing for me that might be helpful is is changing your perspective on success. I think a lot of people see success as you know a, a shining house on the hill that you know you'll eventually purchase when you're 50 years old or something like that, or um, you know, the big family. And I think success, you should think about how you could be successful today. So whether if you're in high school, you know, maybe it's getting your first kiss or finding a date to a prom or buying your first <laughs> car, right? Like that's how you can be successful today or getting into college. Um, and maybe if you're in your early 20s, it's, you know, finding a boss or a company where you think you could learn a lot from um, or purchasing your investment property. So I think Observe where you're at in your life right now. Think about how you can improve it and then just take those actions today um, rather than waiting. Because if you wait, you know, it's never going to happen for you. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Well, it's been great chatting with you, Cameron. Um, I would love to have you on for a round two, maybe in like six months. See uh, if you're, you know, your seasoned thoughts on Winston. <laughs> If yeah. they change at all from now till then, and also, I'm sure the market's going to be way different. Yeah, uh, in six months, so uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But um, yeah, would love to. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, appreciate your time, and uh, I'll talk to you later. Perfect. Have a good one. Hi, this is Evan. One last time, if you enjoyed the podcast show and like to hear more of these, please give a thumbs up, heart, review, whatever the positive affirmation format is available on your podcasting platform of choice. I would really appreciate it. And if you know anyone else who is interested in investing in Winston-Salem or the triad area, I would love it if you would share this podcast with them. Thanks.